Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Good afternoon. Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, my name is Jody Ravespot at Bear. I'm the director and founder of the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance. I live on the Fort Berthold Reservation in, in North Dakota. We're in the throes of a, a ton of environmental issues with uh, living there in the Bakken oil shale formation and surrounded by flares and production water spills of um, um, brine. But <clears throat> again, I want to thank everybody for being a part of this conversation covering Indian country and environmental justice issues. Um, we're all native people here with um, every... My panelists will all introduce themselves and, and talk about the tribes and the areas that we we come from. And I, I can go into some more details later about the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance. Uh, the reason that I had, uh, I worked in mainstream media for uh, 15 years. Uh, 11 of those years I covered American Indian issues for Lee Enterprises and moved back home to, uh, well, it's home. <laughs> After being away for, for 20 years, I went to, got my journalism degree from the University of Colorado at Boulder and worked at a variety of, um, I, I worked in, at the Idaho Statesman, the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, and again, 11 years with the Lee Enterprises. I finished off my last five years uh, with them in, in Missoula, Montana. Now, when I moved back to North Dakota, I encountered some of the same issues um, that were there when I was in high school and that with my own tribal media. After I'd got my journalism degree, a number of people said, well, Jody, you should come back and work for the, the tribe. But there really isn't any freedom of information. Um, all my panelists will have uh, their own perspectives on that. But in short, of the 570 uh, federally recognized tribes in the United States, there's only a handful that have independent press ordinances. And so to have me media allies to help tell these stories or to work with indigenous people to help tell the stories is, is really critical. So thank you for all attending. I'd like to introduce the panelists now. At the very end is Jamie Folson. Jamie is a professor. She's a journalist and a professor here at, the, um, at Colorado State University. And Kaylin Goodluck, right to... Her left is um, Mandan Hidatsa, and he's enrolled with the three affiliated tribes, the same tribes that, um, same reservation where, where I come from. Kaylin is a fellow with High Country News. And then to my immediate right is Alistair Bitsui. Am I saying that's, that right? That's um, <clears throat> and Alistair is with Decay, and Dene. Utah. Utah, Dene. Bakea. Bakea. Okay, we all have to mm -hmm. get up on our, our Navajo. <laughs> and um, so they're all going to do a, a five, five to ten minute introduction of the work that they are doing and, and how environmental justice impacts um, American Indians and American Indian lands. So we'll start with Jamie. Alito Kana Sohochi for Jamie Folsom, Chatasia Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Um, I am a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and as uh, Jody said, I um, am a journalism instructor here at CSU in the Department of Journalism and Media Communication. Uh, I also teach uh, professional and technical communication for the broader university community. Um, I am a researcher and independent journalist. 
but most of all, uh, in inst- being an instructor of budding journalists is um, my passion um, because um, I teach, I bring myself, my cultural perspective, uh, my experience to the classroom in very visible ways where it's often encouraged for people to kind of step back from their identities. Um, I, I go full force with it uh, because it's not likely that um, the young people who pass through those doors will ever meet a, another Choctaw person in their lives. They may not uh, meet another tribal person. So um, I feel it's my responsibility to my ancestors and to future generations to be that and take up space. Um, for me, environmental justice is just something I believe that most stories that uh, journalists are covering in Indian country it's um, it's implicated the idea, the concept of environmental justice and justice overall. Uh, a couple of examples. Um, I mean, because there there are reasons why this would be uh, underlying uh, stories. So let's take uh, a recent trend of bringing back indigenous cuisine or you know Native American foods. And uh, there are restaurants that are opening up, and there's a you know, sort of a new consciousness. There are workshops. Uh, there are celebrity chefs. Um, recently, Sean Sherman from the Oglala Lakota Nation uh, won a James Beard Award for his cookbook, uh, The Sioux Chef. Um, and underlying that, uh, you just think it's, you know, it's about food. Well, it's about food sovereignty. That is the rights of Native people to access and use uh, their um, traditional foods, which may be on the land, which has experienced environmental degradation. Uh, it may be uh, fighting for hunting and fishing rights uh, and protecting the salmon, uh, for instance, in the Northwest. Um it is access to uh, good, fresh water, and we all know that is a matter of environmental justice, and uh, indigenous communities are often impacted the most and then left uh, without the means or the resources to handle the fallout, the pollution, uh, the policies that ignore, um, and so it is a matter of environmental justice. Uh, Dr. Jillia Whitaker this morning in the plenary session mentioned about violence against Native women and girls. Uh, heavily Im- implicated in this is the environmental justice issue of uh, man camps and the oil and gas, uh, the extractive industries, where uh, the workforce uh, is foist upon these smaller rural communities uh, that often uh, border on um, or affect uh, indigenous lands and peoples and indigenous communities. Uh, human trafficking is implicated in that. Uh, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls is across the border with Canada and the United States, as well as Mexico um, and the territories of the United States. Um, so I, I believe very firmly that um, as a journalist, I'm always looking for the justice issues that underlie many of the um, superficial level uh, stories that are covered in Indian country. And I thank you all for being here today. And I appreciate um, your ability to come and, and listen and share with us uh, your experiences as well. Koki. Hi, everybody. Um, so my name is Caitlin Goodluck again. I'm a fellow with High Country News, and I'm on the Indigenous Affairs desk. We recently changed uh, the desk name from Tribal Affairs to Indigenous Affairs. Um, I think we all agreed it was a lot more inclusive. Um, so I, I began looking at, I guess, issues of environmental injustice um, and justice in Fort Berthold. Um, there was an oil boom that began around 2006 or so, and then it really started to peak around 2014. Um, and when I began to kind of start investigating it and looking at it more, um, it really, I really began to see it as very much a self-determination issue. Um, and I think that's where many indigenous, uh, environmental justice, Issues. I think that self-determination is very much at that core. Um, 
going and witnessing all the uh, different types of issues of like pollution, um, hazardous material uh, disposal just strewn across um, indigenous and private lands and things like that. Um, I really just sort of was taken aback by how much unaccountability there was, um, but also how much transparency was um, very much an issue when tribal members began to speak up and they wanted information from the tribal council and the tribal governments. Um, so let me see. At High Country, at High Country News, I my last story was on was on was sort of a part of like eco I was looking at eco fascism and how indigenous rights language was being used um, and appropriated by white nationalists, um, particularly the El Paso shooter, um, partly the New Zealand shooter and uh, the Norwegian shooter. Um, if you can remember, they all really, you know, took horrific numbers of lives. Um, but what was striking to me was looking at their manifestos that were kind of being, you know, all taken down, but some archived in like places like Reddit, that they were all saying like the US was the aggressor toward indigenous people. And that is exactly how we white people feel um, <laughs> with like immigration and the government allowing immigrants to come in. Um, so that's kind of where the eco-fascism um, comes in where you know, these types of fascist thinking, they blame migrants, but they also have a claim to indigeneity to their own homeland. Um, so that was really eye-opening. Their, their heroes um, were my heroes growing up, Geronimo and Crazy Horse. They were like, these guys are the, um, are worthy resistance and we need to also lay claim to them um, just as indigenous people have. Um, looking into another key aspect of environmental justice is uh, looking at anti-Indian groups. Um, and anti-Indian groups are very much targeting indigenous treaties. Um, they use this type of rhetoric of equal rights. Um, to try to lay claim to indigenous land or limit or try to abolish indigenous treaty rights, um, which are very much um, environmentally focused. And so um, I think I'll stop there. I think I kind of gave everyone um, an idea of what I do. Um, yeah, and I'll pass it to you. Okay. Okay, so my name is Alistair Bitsoy. I'm currently the communications director for the nonprofit Utah Denepikea. Um, we're the nonprofit that successfully designated um, Bears Ears National Monument under Obama through cultural knowledge of, of indigenous peoples of the Bears Ears region. However, I'm also, to get to where I'm at now, I was uh, formerly a reporter for the Navajo Times newspaper. Um, so I covered a lot of environmental justice topics in and around Navajo Nation. Um, that included topics like uranium, the legacy of uranium issues in and around Navajo. Um, the oil boom in Eastern Navajo Agency when former New Mexico Governor Susana Martinez expedited BLM leases near and around Chaco. So I was able to be on the ground talking with um, what what we call, there are Navajo Alatis, so there are Diné people who have that access to private lands and they want mining and milling because of the legacy of, I guess, the structural issues that um, we talked about in the panel yes, earlier. D Dina uh, highlighted how some of these issues that indigenous peoples face are all from structural systems that exist that keep us um, from progressing, I guess, holistically. But 
it was just so interesting to cover some of those angles to that to that narrative and then also the bigger Navajo and how they're protecting, trying to advocate for land protection around in and around Chaco. Um, and so just through those experiences from reporting over the four, four years um, um, during my career, and then I still freelance, so I still write here and there environmental topics. Um, recently was um, a Diné woman running from Bears Ears to Salt Lake City, so 330 miles solidarity run to bring issues and awareness to um, to the Bears Ears um, monument. But in my role with Utah Dinepikea, there's tons of environmental injustice topics or issues that are prevalent from the election issues in San Juan County. Um, also, um, land management, we're in litigation with the Trump administration to um, on why he, uh, we already know how, why he uh, shrunk the monument, but um, those are topics that um, we're trying to tackle, but also create sustainable um, connectivity to um, those in San Juan County, Utah, who have no electricity, um, or even f talking about food sovereignty with our traditional foods program, in which we're um, actually on Monday, on Indigenous Peoples Day, we will have a fundraiser for our traditional foods program in which we're going to be serving a, an 11,000-year-old potato that was found in the ancestral sites of uh, both Grand Staircase and Grand um, Bears Ears. And so we're trying to um, empower our Indigenous farmers through access to that um, potato tuber to um, eventually have them. Our indigenous peoples are aware of that knowledge, that cultural knowledge, but I know there's the market demand now with the, the rediscovery of that um, tuber, but there's lots of in lots of work that I realize um, in this role is important to environmental justice and happening, and actually just elevating our Bears Ears narrative, which is Native American indigenous-led. All right, thank you all. And so we're going, the, the way the rest of our panel is uh, going to work is I'll have a few questions for each of them. However, because they all, we all come from um, a lot of different experiences and different regions of, of Indian country, um, we could probably address many of the issues, so we really do want to um, open it up to at least a half hour of, of questions for, for the audience. So please be thinking about um, what you might ask our, our very skilled, adept journalists and teachers. And he's done everything, so <laughs> I can't really put him in a category or a box. Okay, uh, but we we all had interesting um, conversations before we, we came here, and one of our uh, issues that came up is um, oftentimes American Indians, uh, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the environment or, or something, we kind of get shifted into this category of um, being called an activist. And so I don't know. I'd kind of like to ask the audience this question. You know, <laughs> you cover environmental issues. Do you get called an activist? And so I'd like to hear from, from the panelists um, uh, how you manage that role from being um, a journalist but also covering environmental issues with, um, with Bears Ears in, in particular. How do you address that issue? Alistair. Thank you for the question, Jody. Um, yeah, that was um, previewed, a preview, our side convo focused on that. And I, I think I'm glad we're able to talk about that because when, uh, when I'm told I'm an activist, I'm like, <laughs> I kind of get, I'm not awkward about it to embrace it, but I'm just like, I'm not an activist. I'm actually just acting in the capacity of being a Diné person, a native person. And when you go down to the cultural teachings of who we are as indigenous people, like, our ceremonies are naturally embedded in who we are and like our ceremonies connect to the environment and to the land. So when I'm told that, I'm like, I am not an activist. I, even some of my relatives will say, you're an activist. I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> and so like, I think it's these categories that the American society loves to put us all in. And um, I navigate it by disputing that I'm not an activist. I'm just being Dine and that's what I'm taught. And I, I live it through the ceremonies that I'm exposed to. And, the, and it all talks about 
protection of the land. It all talks about restoring um, your well-being through the elements of life. And that's why I, I dispute being called an activist, even in the media. Um, I'm also here that, and part of the reason why um, I'm here in this panel is to help reporters like you all um, be educated about like word choice in your coverage of um, indigenous peoples. And I have here, and I have some copies, what we call our media and culture sensitivity toolkit in which we um, are helping reporters understand um, the correct narrative to Bears Ears among the Ute, Hopi, Zuni, Pueblo, and Diné communities and how they connect to Again, like this word, public lands, uh, we, we, we prefer the word ancestral territory when it comes to that conversation. And so we developed that, this guide to help coach or help teach you the best ways so you wouldn't have damage control to write about when your stories like published in the, in the back end. And so when it comes to activism, I dispute that word. <laughs> Yeah, I think <laughs> I was the one who kind of brought that up because yeah. I was like, what? You're not an activist? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> like, I I do see it differently, um, but I also understand that um, it's not really, like, I have an opinion, but it's not really my place to call you something that you don't believe you are. Um, but I, where I come from on the issue, I guess, is... I see activism as very much an inherently political thing, but it also has its own historical context as well. Um, I think we were talking about, like, well, what does activism mean? What are the images that pop into our head when we see activist? Um, and I think what we, what we kind of were thinking of in our minds is that um, – underlying it all. I think indigenous peoples are finally um, having their voices heard within the activist community, um, something that the environmental groups um, of, you know, early legacy environmental groups, they had no sort of conceptualization of like what um, Indian issues and environmental issues were to them. Um, I think it's something very new to activist communities. I see a lot of, um, you know, Twitter, Twitter activists and leaders who are now sort of acknowledging, like, the land that they are on. Um, I think it's something that they took the lead from indigenous uh, peoples from. Um, as far as being called an activist, I think, like, if I, I just kind of want to make clear um, for any type of activism, what sort of stake that person has or that organization has in the issue, um, and whether um, that stake goes beyond, um, you know, certain conflicts of interest or things like that. Um, I think that's just the bottom line is really um, showing where people's, you know, where they stand, um, whether they're an activist or not. Um, I think that's every reporter's job. Uh, yeah, I'd have to agree with, uh, with Kaylin that uh, I think, um, yes, the, the word activist has political implications. It's also a shady term. It's a code for uh, your person who advocates for one probably extreme, if not just quote-unquote special interest point of view. And, you know, in a newsroom, we know that that can marginalize our voices if we're seen to be, uh, as you said, Kaylin, a conflict of interest somehow. But I would make the case that um, being culturally competent, if you want to say that, being knowledgeable, having the experience and, and uh, a cultural knowledge set is a specialized knowledge set. We wouldn't turn to uh, somebody who doesn't have any experience to go and cover, for instance, uh, something involving uh, sexual assault. Uh, we would turn to somebody who has experience in walking in those uh, spaces and talking to people in sensitive and yet important ways. And I think to, um, I try to recognize 
um, you know, when people have those specialized knowledge sets and recognize that it's not a special interest, it's not a marginal, it's not a conflict of interest, um, but that person has a certain authority to speak to those issues uh, and also experience and understanding um, how to get a good story out that's meaningful and goes beyond the superficial and the stereotypes. So that's been my experience anyway. Okay. All right. Thank you. I have a, a question for the audience. How many of you have ever reported on an American Indian issue? Okay. So have you been to a... Um, did your issue take you to a reservation? Okay, our, our, the hands are even smaller. So uh, I'm supposed to be asking these guys questions. <laughs> I'm really curious about um, how you guys are reporting on Indian country. But again, I, I'll be able to tell when you start asking us um, some questions. But if you're going to cover an American Indian issue, you know, typically, I'd say the majority of the time you're going to be involved with um, uh, on federal lands. And a lot of those lands, be before they became federal lands, they're tribal lands. And I didn't get to hear Dina uh, talk today because I had a 12-hour flight delay with all the snow in the mid Midwest. So I got in at midnight. Um, but... From what I've heard from everybody, Dina had approached, um, addressed some very pertinent issues. And a lot of that has to do with um, treaty land. So most people aren't aware of um, all these different federal land bases, which we call reservations. And so I'd like all of our panelists to talk about treaty lands and, and how do you see, why do you think that, is there importance to that for any typical uh, reporter coming into tribal lands or reporting on American Indian issues? Um, yeah, so treaty lands, when I, when I think of like treaty lands and environmental justice, um, there are two things that kind of come to mind that these, these sorts of international kind of legal mechanisms that kind of sprouted up um, after the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, one is free prior and informed consent, and the other is like self-determination. Um, and so I think like when issues, issues of treaty rights um, and treaty lands pop up, I think that they're are a huge number of stakeholders within all those issues. Um, you know, you have oil and gas, um, you have hunting groups, conservation groups, animal rights groups, and then you have, of course, central to all this is uh, tribal nations, self-determination. Um, and so what's always great and is, um, you know, something that I think is like a kind of a base base level way to cover these types of issues is to know if there's a free prior and informed consent issue. Um, and a lot of that has to do with looking at tribal consultations. Now, every agency has an obligation um, to perform these types of consultations. Um, and I think you all probably know a little bit more about that. Um, but I think like having those sorts of knowing that that's a legal sort of legal mechanism here in the U.S. Um, I think people are starting to, especially the indigenous rights movement, see that indigenous knowledge is such a strong and potent legal tool um, or tool to be used in a legal fashion um, to protect environmental uh, issues. Things like the Klamath River in Oregon that just received personhood rights, um, that actually kind of has a longer history to toward um, the indigenous rights movements. Uh, I think Ecuador is one of the first nations or first countries uh, to recognize uh, the nat naturaleza, which is like nature, um, as a living being that needs to have its own rights and be protected. Um, so those things are going on as well. 
um, in the U.S. But it's I think those those types of things um, are worth you know looking into and having a base level knowledge of when you look into indigenous issues. Um, just very quickly, because my tribe is not directly now affected by a treaty. Um, the treaty was signed with the Choctaws uh, in 1830, um, and our treaty rights gave us the right to displace other indigenous communities in uh, Oklahoma area. And so, uh, yes, it does directly affect us, but we don't have a reservation. Uh, we only have land in trust, so we don't actually own the land outright. Um, you know, my own name is on a, a piece of paper that allows the government to have um, mineral um, um, mining and, and drilling and so on. So it's it's way more complicated than, oh, here is, here's a rule about who gets to fish where. Um, this is, it goes to our identities. It goes to the relationship and the, the very complicated relationship uh, among uh, 573 different tribes plus. Um, and and the U.S. government. So, uh, you know, every every group of people will have a unique history depending on when they first encountered Europeans, uh, what their relationship was when uh, the Americans were um, first forming their government and fighting against Great Britain and France and so on, and those allies, uh, those kind of things formulate how that looks like. And it determines, in some ways, our choices on how much of a stand we can take to protect our own rights to exist as unique people and unique cultures. So when it comes to the work that I'm I'm doing with eight, 10 other peers with our work with Bears Ears National Monument, um, definitely the treaty rights are um, employed, they're deployed, they're, they're in activity and they are represented through the the Five Nations in suit against um, the Trump administration, and they're known collectively as the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. So, um, to advance our narrative um, in ancestral territory like Bears Ears, also known as public lands, um, we are working with our elected leaders to um, navigate the federal system. And each of the, the five tribes um, actually, obviously, as pointed out here, have their own different connections to the cultural landscape. And when it comes to treaty rights, I know um, there, it's, Utah is interesting. <laughs> um, I didn't know that. Um, I never thought I would live there, um, but I, I do now. And um, it's. I've learned that there, it's all about local control, local power. And so I've learned that the San Juan County Commission, for instance, local county commissions have power. Are they? What? That's where. Um, local activity happens, and there's lots of threats happening. And the the latest. Um, example of of tribal sovereignty happening with this narrative around Bears Ears is over a week or so ago the the All Pueblo Governors Council in New Mexico meeting for the first time outside of New Mexico and basically passing resolutions um, in Bluff Utah and letting know the San Juan County Commission but also state and federal leaders in Utah like. We're here, even though we don't um, see, even though we're considered in New Mexico under that jurisdiction as tribes and just as indigenous peoples from this region, we don't see those jurisdictions. We see it from our, our indigenous land, make, like map, mapping, I guess, so to speak. That's the lens we connect to the land. And so for the All Pueblo Governors Council to and um, insert themselves into Utah affairs. I think that's a good example of treaty rights happening and um, the Pueblo, all 20 of them in New Mexico and Utah inserting their sovereignty to engage in local affairs or in and around Bears Ears National Monument. Okay, thank you. We have, we've heard a, a, a varying degree of, of what treaty rights mean and it, it is, it is very complicated, uh, as you've uh, heard a few people say. Behind me, there's a. It's like a two-page list of sources, and I'm going to. 
um, pull that into Google Docs, and then I will put it on the Wolva app, and I, I'll put it on on um, my page, I guess. I don't know what they call it in Wolva, but I'll put the link there the, for all these sources on there. One of those sources that uh, I, maybe one or two of the people listed here is um, called An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Uh, it's a winner of the American Book Award. Very good source uh, if you want to get a better understanding of American Indians' place here in in this country, which kind of um, makes me think of... Uh, Jamie, you had mentioned land acknowledgments, and was this conference opened with a land acknowledgment, Judy? <laughs> She's a board member. Yeah. Okay. I hear a number of people saying saying that. Yes, it was. So land land acknowledgments are. I mean, I'm glad to hear that it it was done, and. Um, did anybody ever hear of a land acknowledgement prior to coming to SEJ? Okay, good. I'm, I'm seeing more more heads nod here. Um, in Canada, they do it a a lot. I was just at the um, I did a, a writing residency at the Bant Center last July, and every single event there on that campus was uh, a land acknowledgement of of all the tribes of in the um, the Banff area. And it's something that's starting to pick up here more in in the United States. But I don't think, I mean, you could go anywhere in this country, and there there's should be a land acknowledgement to indigenous peoples. Um, does anybody care to address the issue of land acknowledgements? If not, we can move on to another question. Go for it. <laughs> I just want to acknowledge Dr. Dominique David Chavez, who was the the uh, person. She is Taino and Arawak uh, from Boriken, and uh, she gave the land acknowledgement. Uh, she also, um, when we do that here at CSU, it's often true that uh, a Native person delivers it, but they also talk about their own experience with the land and the importance that a, an acknowledgement at a land-grant institution is, uh, but more importantly, that we recognize that we are here together in a place of gathering um, and, uh, you know, in a long time tradition of gathering here to discuss important events. So I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, the land acknowledgement <laughs> um, was was more than that. It was also um, part of, uh, there was a poetry reading as well by a Native uh, poet and um, music provided by a Native musician. So uh, it wasn't just a, kind of a one-off like you sometimes see. Um, and sometimes we have students who read it, uh, and that's good at, at, that it's there. Uh, but one of the points always made is a land acknowledgement is one step, but land restoration and giving back land um, is actually uh, probably a good thing in the long run. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. Um, we do appreciate the land acknowledgement, but I feel like it's more than a Twitter trend. Like it's more than that. You got to under you got to go further, and that's a messaging thing that we work on at Utah Denepikea. Like, yes, we see all of this happening in Utah and across the world or the U.S. Um, but it's just, it's more than that. It's more, it's like understanding our issues, like all the way down to like the colonization era. And then even like addressing some of those historical traumas from those periods of time that impact the behavior of us as people, as indigenous peoples today. And so I think it's more than just a Twitter trend. We got to go further and listen to the tribes. And that's why I asked that question too. And Dinah did as well to William Pinley earlier today, like, when are you going to listen to us? Because we're trying to protect the land for all of them, all of us as humans and non-humans. I think also, like, land acknowledgement, say you're, goes a long way in reporting as well. I think that understanding that you want indigenous, an indigenous audience to be reading your reporting, um, you don't want it just to be about an indigenous issue. 
Um, but also when you when you go into these kinds of communities, you want to make sure that you're not you're adding value to their news knowledge. You don't want to be reporting the same thing that they already know has been going on for 10 years. I think I made this mistake um, a little like a week ago where I was asking someone about like their ceremonial whale hunts and this issue going on um, for them. And they're like, just check the clips. I'm so tired of talking about this. This is it's. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I'll be back when I do my homework. (laughs) Um, But I think making sure that your reporting is adding value um, for them, I think is just as important. Um, You're not just reporting for uh, East Coast or West Coast or a Western audience. You know, you need to be including uh, these communities as well. So change your date lines to ancestral territories instead of the city names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good idea. Oh, goodness. Um, Kaylin had mentioned reporting for the communities, and it just reminds me of um, when a lot of the mainstream news sources started coming into reporting on the Bakken oil development there in, in North Dakota. Uh, the Fort Berthold Reservation sits right in the middle of, of the Bakken oil, oil shell. And I would say all the major news outlets were reporting on that story, and there was never once mention of um, this huge reservation where almost a million acres in the middle of all this oil development. And people say that Fort Berthold is in the, the so-called sweet spot in that the richest, deepest oil well reserves or the deposits um, are right there on our reservation. And we've been on that land for thousands of years, the Mandan and the Hidatsa, and later on the the Arikara came upstream on the on the Missouri River, and um, so the people that were there the longest, it, it took years before people started reporters started realizing or paying attention to American Indians and and what was happening to to us. And so, yeah, so a New York Times had come out with a story or the New Yorker, and, and really it was old news to us. There wasn't really anything new. They were just catching on to it much, much later, uh, which brings up a, another issue. Uh, if you're going to come into our lands, who's going to be your sources? How are you going to find those people? Which is very problematic. Um, uh, Jamie and I had this conversation. Kaylin had brought it up. His aunt is recorded and um, interviewed in, in every newspaper story about Marilyn Hudson, uh, about what's happening on Fort Berthold. She's an excellent source, very educated, knowledgeable in our history, and um, and and she's she's very quotable. But we all. Everybody here in this room should probably realize that there's um, other people in voices in these communities, too. So I'd like to ask the panelists if you could help our audience here. How do you go beyond that? the Marilyn Hudson's, again, very respected elder, but she's... interviewed all the time, how do you find somebody else? Um, Yeah, my aunt is, yeah, super PR ready all the time. Um, (laughs) um, But if you do meet her, you'll like her. Um, Let's see. So yeah, like, I, I was fortunate enough to, like, you know, have an aunt who's super knowledgeable about um, my homelands and the issues at hand. Um, but, you know, those people, like, they do show up often in coverage, um, often in, that's kind of common in Indian countries, you just see the same people quoted all the time. Um, and so I think it's it's always good to, you know, go for them um, but it's not like, it's not going to support your coverage in any meaningful way. That's you know, it's not going to provide anything new that's not already out there. 
Um, so it's always good to have someone who is your point person. Now, whether that's Marilyn Hudson or um, someone who lives right by uh, where um, a pipeline had spilled, you know, near their home. I think that you need to be finding people who are extremely close to the issue. Now, it's always great to have someone um, who is well-respected within the community to um, sort of accelerate your reporting in a lot of ways, um, just because in these types of communities, um, they are extremely suspicious and sometimes skeptical of media coverage. Um, so you need to do your best uh, to listen to them, um, to acknowledge you know, their, maybe their concerns with sharing their story. Um, but also, you know, they're ultimately, they're the people that you're going to be reporting for, um, and they want to see more value in these stories. Um, so it is good. You know, you need to have someone who can open those doors for you. Um, that's a practical tip. Um, I'd just like to go back to what Kaylin said earlier about, um, you know, picking your sources and being sensitive. Uh, one of the things is uh, that's historically been a problem is the silencing of indigenous voices. And that occurs in the media uh, as uh, native journalists. Um, we don't get called uh, the same way another reporter who's local to an area where a story occurs. We don't get called to come in and uh, partner uh, you know, provide some um, support and understanding about what uh, what the impact to the indigenous community is. And so if you lack that perspective, the reporting can be very shallow. And as a matter of fact, I have a, a bingo card here from the Native American Journalists Association. And these are different tropes that always show up in uh, reporting in Native country. Um, a casino, singing... Uh, reference to the ancestors, alcohol, dancing, vanishing culture, unemployment, poor education, dying language, you get the point. Uh, you can make a bingo pretty easily there. So um, my tip is to uh, try to contact uh, an organization like the Native American Journalists Association, um, Indian Country Today Media, uh, local media, tribal uh, you know, media, to see if you can partner and collaborate and give that person a meaningful voice in your reporting. They're not just your connection to your real sources. So that's it's really important to lift up those voices of Native journalists uh, because there are thousands of us out there uh, in different communities. And because we're like technically only 2% of the population, um, you might not think that you can find us, but you'll find us. Um, I'd like to add, um, I don't know if since they're the professional journalists, I'm considered the, I guess, PR side of it. But when we're pitching stories to media, um, I um, we developed this toolkit here in part because we felt the need was necessary because of the poor coverage of journalism in our area. And um, we felt that like there was all kinds of issues that I saw, and I'm like, we're, we're allowing this to happen. Along with on our team, we have Angela Baca, who is um, Dene Hopi, and he focuses on the academics of um, media reporting. He's a doctoral student at NYU, and I bring in my my background with being a professional journalist um, before being in this role, and we developed this toolkit that we kind of orientate with um, reporters who are covering uh, the Bears Ears beat in their regions. Um, and we, we develop a toolkit, and it's not, well, the indigenous people know probably here, like reciprocity is important to our communities. And so we felt that like all reporters covering Bears Ears topic, topics need to undergo this orientation um, to tell our stories um, better. Um, including um, veering away from word choice, like I don't like the word creation, myth, um, lore, legend, prehistory. Those are terms we banned in our organization for reporters not to use. We also prefer like creation narrative if you're gonna um, explore those topics. 
We also, when it comes to, na we prefer native over Indian. We also prefer, when it comes to public lands, like and, and ancient structures or ancestral sites rather than ruins. And so those word choice matters in coverage when it comes to um, the Bears Ears narrative. Um, ancestral territory over public lands. Um, and we, we focused on just reciprocity and how that's important to, I know the rules of journalism or the objectivity is like, well, I can't eat food here because <laughs> I'm picking a side. Or I know in times when I was a reporter for the Navajo Times, I would, I would, I would, I was new to the rules of journalism and I knew I was told by senior reporters like, don't eat the food. If you do, you're considered buying, being a sellout to the story. So I made sure I never really followed and that capacity, but then I saw the need that our reporters, these non-native reporters covering Bears Ears are just taking extractive information and not following up exactly and telling a better story. And so we felt that like having a reporter guideline in this um, toolkit here to help reporters engage in these stories um, was better for us in our narrative because um, corporations, and we are a grantee of Patagonia, when they inserted their narrative to Bears Ears, it took control and everyone now associates Patagonia with Bears Ears when it was like Utah, Denepikea, and the Native American elders of San Juan County, Utah, who are the true like storytellers or the valid data <laughs> information to to this narrative around Bears Ears National Monument. And so we felt that like pointing out maybe even offering a photo if you're a photographer, like offering like a photo as a gift um, to the source um, that you're interviewing. I think and then maybe I don't know if you would like we felt like not everyone's gonna have tobacco, but even something of value among um, the source would be important. But also even just like taking out the source to coffee, because most of the time our sources I feel like are barely still trying to survive and they're trying to accommodate you as a inner like a journalist <laughs> just to to be available. And so those are protocols and tips that we offered. And also I like to claim that, or say that we felt that even though a native person dresses or looks the part, they're not necessarily the best journal, like source for a story as well. And so we have a, all kinds of guidelines in this booklet, and we also know that um, different tribes engage with media differently. And in my exposure, I felt like the net people were more liberal um, compared to the Pueblo or the Ute peoples who are more conservative in their approach. And so those are things that reporters, especially those who are covering the environmental beats here, um, need to know. And so I have this as a resource for you all. Okay, all, all excellent points. Well, time is going by very quickly here, and we've got probably 20 minutes left of the, the panel. I don't know if you caught the announcement early, but 12.30, if you want to attend the luncheon, everybody needs to probably be going out the, at the door at, at, at 12.30. Did you need to say something? Okay, well, she checks on that. We're, we're ready to start taking some questions. We'll start with the front row here. Okay, so I've been asked to repeat the question. Um, <laughs> okay, so as reporters, is there a pressure to give all this context about the history? So you're saying in their own writing, do they feel they have to mention all the, the history? Okay, so is there a pressure to, uh, do you feel the need to, give all this historical context in, in your reporting, and do you have any tips on how to do that? Um, so we developed this because it was so exhausting to explain over and over and over again, and just like, I was I was on a other, another panel on Wednesday talking to this, but I there was a point in time where I know like um, industry news was like calling us, I think it was a CBS um, affiliate in New York, and she wanted us to stage like a ceremony for her so she can get background um, to cover Bears Ears. And I was just really annoyed with her. And I was just like, <laughs> this is really happening. And she kind of like, well, we want, she kept rationalizing it. And I was just like, no, you're not, we're not doing that for you. And, and so like we, like all those instances and yeah, we even, even though, um, we have we struggle with it daily, and especially in Utah, you have to explain that um, 
because it's like it's like right wing Mormon, so they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing, and we have to call out some of the things. And like I know there's a representative in Utah, Phil Lyman, who like basically disputed everything. Like San Juan County is not the reason for for the issues of Native Americans in San Juan County. Like, San Juan County didn't do this. Can, like, it went on, and it was an op-ed. And so, like, then we realized, like, more of this basic information. That's why, as indigenous people, there's already written and unwritten codes about this. But, like, we're surprised, like, the non-Nature audience is demanding this. And it's a collective effort among people. So it's not, it does not, it's not, institutional knowledge that belongs to anyone, but with our work, we felt like it's paying off because it's actually helping us with our coverage of stories. And just given the need of this, we're gonna um, focus on academia, academic, the, in your field as an academic, like how to, because we do have a lot of um, researchers interested in some of the narratives in and around Bears Ears, and this is important for them to understand. Okay, um, unless, and Jamie or Kaylin has something very pressing to reply to that. I'd kind of like to jump to the next question just so we can get to more questions. Um, I'm just going to go to the corner here. So the question that's being asked is if Patagonia um, being an ally harms our narrative. Is that what it is? Or like how, if it's a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, do I have to repeat that question? <laughs> um, so in this case, um, prior to the campaign, the president stole your land. Um, I think resolution, relationships with Patagonia were okay until that when Trump shrunk the monument that created um, pushback among indigenous peoples in America and were like, this is wrong. And so even internally as a staff, when I got hired, we were debating whether how do we engage, how do we proceed with Patagonia even though we are a beneficiary as a grantee? Like how do we tell our funder like what they said was wrong? And so we were in, and that hurt our relationship for a bit because, but in, when I was on board, there was you team, teammates and myself that were like, we need to address this. And we actually um, went to Patagonia and provided this training on sensitivity to them so that they understood and we also met with them at the outdoor retailer show like two two summers ago now in Denver and so we were doing our due diligence as far as like how because as a grantee we're also supposed to like work with them on blogs and written pieces and there was a time issue and we got pressure from the executive director of our org like we need to fix this relationship we got to just proceed and we're like no we can't we and he is a Belagana guy so he's a white guy leading our efforts as well so there's lots of pushback internally like how how do we like even you as an executive director like how do we educate you to understand where we're coming from and so with the Patagonia narrative it has been beneficial so far since this training because they now run pieces by us before publishing but also like I even like they wrote a blurb on Willie Gray Eyes who was at the time our board chair now he's a San Juan County Commissioner and they they wrote like the lead sentence of that blog like him having a ponytail and I was just like annoyed with that because he doesn't wear a ponytail he wears a TA that's it's a Deneff bun and so just I was happy after this training that they um they were running that piece to us, and I made sure it was a Deneth term, then an English term, but eventually they settled on traditional bun as a descriptor to his um, who Willie Gray Eyes is. And so I feel like in that regard, some of that healing is still happening between UDB and Patagonia. Okay, uh, in the very back. Okay, so the, the question is, how does the myth of biological racism affect the reporting? Okay. I think, are you talking about the blood quantum system? Um, I think that comes down to identity and how it's defined. Like we have uh, the self-determination as individuals that even though we may not be eligible for a blood quantum or a biological basis for having a tribal membership or citizenship in those things, that we claim our rights um, past all the disruption to uh, have access to our cultures and elders and ceremonies and things like that. But that's 
an individual basis. And, it, you know, the, the blood quantum thing, whether it's used to say you're a tribal member or not, that's not our system. That's not our way, right? And it comes to play. It's very important to understand that problem in order to understand how the Indian Child Welfare Act works. And, uh, you know, the recent cases with baby Veronica and, and so on that, well, this this baby is only one sixty fourth Choctaw, for instance. Uh, it was a case in California. And so if you don't know that for Choctaw people, if you are a descendant, you are Choctaw. You are our people. And you have the right to be with your family and know your culture and people who are trying to adopt away from uh, the tribe and the culture are uh, inherently acting against uh, our ability to exist. And so that's what's at stake uh, in understanding that, you know, ICWA uh, works this way for, um, to protect, um, but it, it has also been used to um, prevent that relationship from developing. So is it, I mean, that's one example of how a biological determination or, or a biological essentialism uh, plays out in a potential news story. Okay, um, gentlemen, yes, you. Can you, re can you repeat his question? Oh man, okay, so the question, um, the question as I understand it is, are indigenous environmental justice issues um, seen more as separate than, or is there more common cause with other marginalized groups and their environmental justice issues? Is that? Do I see them as separate? Okay. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's certainly very distinct issues, specifically around treaty rights um, and groups or interests that seek to limit or destroy those treaty rights. Um, environmental justice, I think, affects every marginalized group. I think, like, it's on in a very basic level, it's about the fair distribution of environmental burdens. Um, so if you know, different, each group has different interests and stakes in different matters. Um, but I think very basic things like, you know, like um, air, water quality, um, those things can be linked and traced to each group um, where they have issues. And so I think like there's difference in legal mechanisms and difference in inclusion in environmental movements um, and difference in uh, stakes like we've talked a lot about um, accuracy in and cultural sensitivity um, in covering indigenous groups that needs to be uh, recognized and um, knowing that you know I think it was kind of um, interesting I really love the New York Times 1619 piece that went over you know various um, you know, historical linking to the present of, you know, from slavery to um, different kinds of public health and environmental plights of um, African-American citizens here in the U.S. But when I listened to the Long Reads interview, um, indigenous issues were erased completely. Um, the person asked, like, um, oh, my God, I'm forgetting her name, um, but, you know, the lead researcher and the who conceptualized the project, um, about indigenous issues, and she was like, well, you know, they were just put on reservations, and then they were kind of separate, and I was like, you can't just erase everything about indigenous peoples and their history and their, um, their contributions to democracy and stolen land and, you know, all that sort of thing, and it was really, I was really disappointed and taken aback, um, and that that idea wasn't challenged further, and so when you think about um, historically erasure of indigenous people. I think that that's, it's common, especially in discussions about race and ethnicity, um, to forget about indigenous peoples. Um, and so I think being inclusive in your, um, in your framing and your reporting, I think is, um, you know, it's on every journalist to be able to do that and include um, those types of issues because indigenous peoples are your audiences as well. Um, and they need to be included and um, 
to be able to participate in there. Um, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to send uh, Nicole Hannah-Smith an uh, email. <laughs> yes. Okay, um, go ahead up front here. <laughs> Dinah, what's the name of your book? Um, it's As Long as Grass Grows, the Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Oh, here, if you bring it up here, I'll, I'll say it on the speaker and we'll get it recorded. <laughs> okay, as long as grass grows, there's a little no dapple ledger art here. Uh, okay, the indigenous fight for environmental justice from colonization to Standing Rock. Okay, great. I'll, I'll be picking up a copy. We're down just to a final few minutes because we want to make sure everybody gets um, out to the session in, in the purple shirt here. Yeah, so we have Donovan Quintero in the background, who is a photog, but also a reporter who is getting an award here, um, who can definitely help as far as, um, I think a good, I made this recommendation, but there was also pushback on Wednesday. We're like, well, I don't want to take exploit resources, but I felt like you as an outsider reporter could possibly collaborate and even have coffee with Donovan, for example, and he can probably brief you on what can happen, what kind of sources. I know with Bears Ears, a lot of um, reporters, I think um, the historic preservation offices are best sources as well for cultural narratives to any kind of cultural landscape. Um, and. I think um, the chapter houses are a great source as well because that's on the ground in the people, like in the community. Like they're the ones who can point you, or if not, um, they'll say something um, and point you in the right direction. But I feel like the longer you're in the communities, the better you'll be served for with sources. Um, sure, yeah. I think um, I don't know of any like Indian country fixers. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Um, but it's, it's something that... Um, I think one thing I think it's just, yeah, it's really just staying um, and getting to know the community um, as long as you can. I think that's going to be the most beneficial. Um, it's always hard, I know, because everybody, um, everybody parachutes into Indian country. And it's really up to you to understand the history, um, to be sensitive and understand the etiquette there. Um, and there's really no quick fix for that. Um, and uh, I don't think, yeah, I think the fixer model is also kind of weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's my thoughts. Okay, um, and, and just for the sake of getting, keeping everybody on time, as Jamie mentioned earlier, reach out to other native journalists. There's no shame in talking to another fellow reporter to help you get the job done. Let's give all our panelists a round of applause. Thank you.